I want to talk about experiences versus process. Let's take just a few moments and let's just discuss that. And we want to share our story because we want to give you hope. We want to give you hope for those of you that may be struggling or suffering in some area of your life. And you might say to me, how are you going to give us hope? Well, I'm going to tell you because we're going to show you the goodness and the grace of God in all things at all times. It's hard sometimes when you're in pain. When you're going through a hardship, when you're going through a trial or your tribulation, and all of a sudden to see the goodness of God can be a struggle. But I promise you, if you look, he's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's always with you. He's a good, good father. Amen? Come on, never say he's a good, good father. And so I just want to share with you our journey and what we've been through part of our life and how we've decided just to follow Jesus and how Jesus has always shown up for us. My, my wife and I, we married young. I used to be in the music business traveling on the road, and I met my wife at one of our concerts right there in Phoenix, and uh, we started dating. She was 15. I was 17. I remember when she walked into the church. Uh, I was waiting to see if she would be at the concert because I'd seen her at a couple other places, and I, you know, I was being godly, but still, at the same time, I was wanting to check this girl out. And so uh, she wasn't there and I was a little disappointed. And so all of a sudden when the concert was over, she came in the side door. She was a cheerleader. She'd been at Friday night football and she walked in her cheerleader's outfit. And I looked at my brother-in-law and said, do you see that girl right there? I'm going to marry her. Now I thought I was joking, but I guess I was prophesying because we started dating that night and here we are 38 years later, We're actually 41, if you include the dating and all that's involved. Amen. So we got married at a young age. I was 20 years old and she was 10 days out of high school. While her school went into what they call their senior fling trip, I was her senior fling. And uh, we got married at that young age. And man, we just started going full on into life. We started a church when I was 23. She was 21. We had three children under the age of three, thanks to twins. Uh, we were building our first house. I was the state youth director over 28 churches in the state of Arizona. I ran youth camps for those years. Uh, we had a business with 13 businesses. We served, serviced in a janitorial uh, manner. So all of a sudden you can see to say we were busy would be an understatement. And how many knows we can get so busy sometimes we take our eyes off the things that are vital. We take our eyes off the things that are important. Well, over the course of time, just a matter of a few years into our marriage, there began to be signs of trouble in my life. I know that things broke out where I would be up for days, I wouldn't be resting, I'd, I'd be going and going, and then I would crumble, I would be in a fetal position in tears and not be able to function, depressed. And I was on this roller coaster ride for quite a few years, and my wife went, that through, went that, through that with me, and, and all of a sudden, we kind of started avoiding one another. We, we got to where we couldn't communicate, so she would do the family thing, and I'd come home sometimes and play the hero father, and I would do the the church thing and get busy with ministry. And really, we were just avoiding one another and avoiding what was in the room when we were together. Uh, she used to say to me all the time, there's something wrong with you. You, be, you need to be checked out. There's something wrong with you. And I'd say, yeah, there's something wrong with me. You're driving me crazy. So that was where we were at. And that's kind of where our life was at. Through the course of the next few years, pastoring, we were married 10 years and pastored seven and a half years. And because of all these difficulties, we grew further apart until we went through a, a divorce, a, a very painful divorce, very dark, deep, painful time in our life. My wife had been through a lot with my manic depressive bipolar because we found out that year as I sought help under psychiatric care that I was diagnosed with manic depressive bipolar disorder. We were divorced, we knew what the problem was, but we knew that we could not be together. 
So we changed life. We divorced. She moved. I moved to California with my parents, with my children. They helped me out. We'd lost everything. My wife moved into a two-bedroom apartment with a roommate, and uh, she had kind of turned the opposite way because she had gone from a pastor's home and married a young man who became a pastor that she never wanted to be in ministry. And because I had had an affair with her friend, and she was in our church, and because life had went that way, she decided her husband had hurt her, her friends had hurt her, ultimately the church had hurt her. Her parents were treated wrong, she'd been treated wrong, and all she could see was this eyesore called the church. So she decided she was going to take another route. She decided she was going to go the world's way. She was going to decide and see if maybe the world was better. So she loved to dance. She still loves to dance. I'm going to tell on her. But she loved to dance back then. So she just started as a single woman once again, going to the clubs and hanging out. And, and because she was going to the clubs, she started drinking. And everyone knows if you're dancing, drinking just makes your dance moves better. You know the people I'm talking about, right? Uh, and, and because she started drinking and she was working and she was clubbing, uh, she started doing crystal meth to have the energy for her lifestyle. I watched her dwindle down to about 98 pounds in a terrible way. She was dating gentleman after gentleman. She was living with someone. I was living with someone. After a while, I moved in with another girl. We were totally torn apart after knowing what was best and after knowing God. So just because you're here and you've been serving God and you know his word doesn't mean you ever stop being a target. You've got to keep your eyes focused on what God has called you to. So we went through a year and a half of being separated and divorced and living in two different states. And she would come back and forth and she would see our children and she watched my process of being healed up. And we actually started kind of dating again and kind of becoming friends. She found out I was the guy she remembered from high school. And we kind of started, you know, talking and going, we would drive on drives together and we'd find ourselves talking till three or four o'clock in the morning. And because she had no money, she would come visit my boys in California and she couldn't afford a hotel. So she stayed in my parents house, which did not make me mad because God had told me in my divorce, he was going to restore our marriage on our divorce date. It was the devastating time in my life. Uh, she, she wasn't so devastated when the, the divorce was decreed. She wouldn't have had a party. I went to pay phone to call my mama because I'm a mama's boy to this day. And so I called my mom and I was in tears and I said, mom, I don't know what I've done. So I started home and then I got back to California. That's the conversation I had with God. I said, God, what have I done? How have I gotten here? How am I so far from where I'm supposed to be? And the Holy Spirit said to me, what is it you want? I don't know how God speaks to you. I have a real relationship with him. I don't have a prayer language where I come with words that are made up. I just say things like, God, today I'm in a bad mood. If you don't help me, I'm going to punch someone in the throat. That would be the conversation I have with God. And so I said, God, I don't know what I've done. And he said, what do you want? I said, I want my life back. I want my marriage back. I want my family back. I, the destiny that I was supposed to have. And here's what he said to me. He said, you do what I say and I'll work with you. He never said, I'll do it for you. It's going to happen. He just said, do what I say and I'll work with you. So all of a sudden, that is when I learned what renewing the mind was all about. That's when I learned what it was to make your mind be and think what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to think. So God instructed me at that point in time to take my pager. I didn't have a cell phone, y'all. This is back in the 90s. You know what I'm saying? The pager, and you made sure you walked to everyone could see it because you had a pager. You know what I'm saying? Because you were cool like that. So God instructed me that, well, as it work, I was working for the Goodyear Corporation, just to set the alarm on my phone for every 30 minutes. 
Every 30 minutes, the alarm would buzz. And I would take inventory. I'd go back into the break room or the tire room, and I'd say, what were you thinking? Why were you thinking negative thoughts, depressing thoughts, anxious thoughts? And I would go through scriptures, Romans 12, 2, be renewed in your mind. Philippians 4, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, leading every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I'd go back to work. 30 minutes later, I'd be back by myself taking inventory. After a few weeks, God had me set it for every hour. So every hour, I would take inventory. After a few more weeks, I set it for every two hours. After a few weeks, every four hours. Can I just say this to you? This has been almost 30 years ago, right around 30 years ago almost. And what I do to this day, my phone goes off in the morning. The first thing it says is renew your mind. Later on in the day, it comes up and says T-A-W-T-A. That's an acronym for think about what you're thinking about. And I'm convinced that most Christians never take inventory of their thoughts, never take inventory of what they're thinking about, and they think the most defeating, discouraging, anxious thoughts, and we wonder where our peace is at. The Bible says that I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on me. And a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Can you say amen? And so we have to have that place where we come to him and we set our thoughts upon who he is on the things above, not the things on earth, where Christ is seated with the Father in heavenly places. If we're going to remember who we are, then we're going to have to remember whose we are. Can you say amen? And so that's what happened for me. For the next, for the next several months, I would just sit on the edge of my bed at night. I would quote my scriptures through the day. And here's what I want you to know. The seven months later, I went off my medication with with a lot of accountability, by the way. Don't you go home if you're hearing you're taking meds. Say, Pastor said, throw my meds away, because that's not what I'm saying. It was a process. It was months. It was accountability. It was people at work, people I spoke to and said, look for these signs, because I don't know them. But I went off my meds, and God healed my mind. Since that time, I've not had a day of depression. I've not had a day of anxiety. God had completely healed me. So there is hope for those of you that know where hope needs to be found. And we just give that hope away all the time. So we begin our journey and all of a sudden uh, uh, when she would call, I would ha- we did have caller ID and she would call. And in fact, the, the weekend after our divorce, she called and I picked up the phone. I said, hey, babe. And she said, don't ever call me that again. It was a great start to the conversation. So I said, well, I was just praying and I felt like God told me he's going to restore our marriage. And she said, you poor, pitiful man, it's time to go on with your life. And I thought, oh, okay, that's a great start, God, way to support. Anyone ever felt like God said, do something that you just had no support at all? So all of a sudden, she would call and I would try to reach the phone first and I would say, hey, how you doing? I was just thinking, if we remarry, come on, I got a good job out here, are you gonna move out here or am I gonna move out there? And I said, next time, hey, I was just thinking, if we remarry, she would say, would you quit saying that? And after about the next two months, one time we was talking, she said, well, let me ask you this. If we ever did remarry, could we move back into our old house? And I thought, man, this faith thing is working. It's actually working. And so we started talking about reconciliation. We started talking about restoration. We start to, and all of a sudden we're dating and we're friends again. And, and let me tell you something. Well, the divorce time was only actually six months because we were separated for that first year. But God restored our lives. God restored our minds. God restored our family. And I'm telling you here, whatever struggle you're in, whatever problem you're facing, whatever it is you feel is impossible, whatever dream you think has died, whatever it is you think can't be done in your life, I'm here to tell you that it's not over till God says it's over. And if he hasn't said it, it's not the end. Come on, y'all. 
And so as we now, we go forward in our life and we stay out of the ministry for the next few years, we found a real joy in just walking around the lake and being a family. And I remember as a, a former pastor of seven and a half years at dinner when the phone would ring, I think I don't even have to answer that sucker. It can just ring off the hook. I don't care. We were just being a family and we watched our kids begin to grow and they were so excited we was back together and we just proceeded. And it wasn't long after that until we knew the gifts and the callings of God were without repentance, that God called us to ministry. And one day we had to have that conversation because she was pretty much through with the idea of ministry. And I went to her and I said, listen, babe, I, I know that God's calling me back to be a pastor, but I will not do it the same way. Either you're in this to win it, or I won't do it. Either we're going to do this together, or I'm not going to do it at all because God's called us together. Can I just say this to you? That young lady sitting right over there, she already knew. She had more spirit in her probably than I did. She said, I knew this day was coming, and she said, I'm going to be in it. Not only is she in it, she runs it. She's the pastor, let me tell you. Uh, I go where she says go. I do what she says do. And I say, how long am I going to do it? And she tells me. Come on, y'all with me. Happy wife? Oh, yeah. Some smart men out there. This is good. Father's Day. Happy life? Yeah, same way. It doesn't matter either way. Mama's happy. Everyone's happy. And, and so we, we remarried. And there we are. Now we're being a family. Now it's ministry time. It's fantastic. We go into ministry. And, you know, we started our first service. And it was fun. And, as we broke into the, the, the first service itself, we were just so excited. In the first few months, we gathered about 100 people somewhere in there, and we're just having church, and we're out visiting one night a family. We go out to just make a you know, kind of a family call, and they ask us to stay, and it was summertime. Our kids loved their house. They had animals and chickens and goats, and, and so it was summer. We stayed out. We left our home about 11 p.m., and we were in a little sports car, you know, just a little sports car, and a little three-seater in the back, and the bucket seats, and and as we started home, we got into an intersection. And as we got to the intersection, the light changed green. The light changed green, so I went on. As we went through the intersection, a diesel truck ran a red light, and it struck the car with all five of our family members, my three sons, me and my wife. Broke my wife's neck in two places. Her neck is fused and, and has plates and screws. It broke her back in three places. She has 14-inch rods up and down, titanium rods up and down her spine. It shattered every bone in her face to where she had to, she had to have her face cut off twice and literally had to take skull bone and rebuild her nose and reattach her eye sockets and the orbital walls were crushed. And she went through five major surgeries over two years and that same accident killed our nine-year-old twin son. And I'll never forget the pain of looking in the back seat of a car, watching your son close his eyes, knowing he's either dead or close to death. I remember through the night praying, praying in the English and praying in the spirit. I had three broken ribs, a broken collarbone, bleeding under my chest, and I wouldn't let him, get, I wouldn't let him give me pain meds because I was going to be clear-minded for decisions I had to make. The next morning when I walked into the hospital room, they said, we have to take your son off the machine. I said, no, 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 we're, no, we're not taking him. They said, you have no choice now. It's legal matter. He's gone. So I was now forced to go to the other hospital. They were in two different hospitals to see my wife, who's now laying there in a body cast, tubes in her throat and nose and, and you know, just IVs attached. She knew because of her father that our son had been injured pretty badly. When I walked into the room and she was laying there and she looked up at me and she whispered, how's Brandon? I'll never forget this moment as long as I live. That I said not a word, I just shook my head. And I never seen a mother come out of a bed in such pain. 
pulling hoses and tubes and IVs out of her arms and out of her nose and out of her mouth and screaming. And I'm telling you now, I never knew pain had such a sound as what came out of my wife that day. The maternal sounds of a mama who'd lost her child. A painful moment I'll never forget. And I remember as we proceeded forward, as they sedated her and we came back to conversation. One of the first conversations we had simply went along this line. We have two sons on earth that we're living for now. And that's much greater than the one we've invested in heaven. He's not in our past, he's in our future. This is when you find out what you're made of. This is when you find out if your faith, what you've learned in the word is true. This is when you find out if you've developed inside yourself what it takes to get to the next step, regardless of what you're, here's what we say at our church, whatever comes, we overcome. That's why we say we're a church that cares where you're going and not where you've been. That's a motto for my wife and I, that if we can be as jacked up and as messed up and as tormented as we were, and he can make it as good as it is right now, let me tell you, he can do all things. He's sincere when he says that to us in our life. Come on, y'all with me. And for me, it, it was just a time when I didn't understand. It was a father, a father, and the guilt I experienced of the fact I was driving the car that killed my son. I went through this guilt thing of thinking I could figure it out, and I'll figure it out because I'm the pastor. I know the Bible. And I remember a few days after my son was killed, I was sitting on the stairs of my house. It was about three o'clock in the morning. My parents were there taking care of the boys, and I was trying to heal up emotionally and physically. And I was sitting on the stairs of my house, and all of a sudden I said, God, why didn't I see that truck? Why didn't I see that truck? And I heard the Holy Spirit say this to me. I saw that truck. I didn't know what to say. I've never been so flabbergasted by God in my life. And so things got real. Ever say things got real. Once again, I don't know how you are with God, but this is how I am with God. I said, God, what do you mean I saw that truck? If there's ever a time I felt like Job when God said, where were you when I formed the foundations of the world? Do you know where the wind comes from? Do you know where it blows? I felt as though, come on, I would never understand this moment. But here's what I told God. Fine, you saw the truck. And I'm telling you, I'm mad, and I'm mad at you. You're God. You could have found another way for whatever your plan was. But here's what I found out in that 30-minute discussion. It took me from this young, 34-year-old, arrogant guy that was going to know all the answers to a kid that said, you know what, God, I may not know what's going on, and though it's not biblical, and Job said it in the Old Testament, though you slay me, yet will I serve you. It took me to a place of trust. It took me a place of believing God. It took me to a place that was no longer about me, come on, but it was all about him. Come on, everyone say it's all about him. And so we've spent those years now of knowing that God is with us, and he's let us know along the way that he is with us. Seven years later, we uh, experienced another tragedy where my, my, my cell phone rang, and a second son, our second son, the 11-year-old that was in the car at the moment, and the twins were nine, my second son was in an accident. We got a call, said he's been in an accident, and thought, we thought, okay, he's had an accident. We've done that before. And so we walked into this, the busiest hospital in Phoenix, and they pulled us to the side room. We thought, well, that's not good. We've seen this before. And so we went into that side room, and they said, you can't see your son until we get him cleaned up. He's gone through the windshield of a car. 80-mile-an-hour drunk driver hit him and his friends in a truck, killed all three instantly in that truck. The other two, one is not good in his brain today. The other can't walk. And we walked into, finally, two hours after them cleaning our son, we walked into something I would have never dreamed of in my life. I'm not queasy. I don't, I don't get shaken easy. But if I had not known it was my son, I would have not known it was my son. 
And I remember my, my, my wife at that time, she said, God, not again. I can't go through this again. My other son walked out mad at God. Can I just say this to you? We said, God, we'll serve you. But God, we don't want to go through this again. And so all of a sudden he got better. And two days later they came, they said, there's been, there's been something that happened. They called me and they said, your son's brain that was bleeding in about 26 places has stopped bleeding. And I said to the doctor, I said, that's, that's astonishing. He goes, no, no, I don't say this often, but it's a miracle. He said, it'd be like you cut all the fingers on your hand. They all stopped bleeding at one time. Your son's brain stopped bleeding. <laughs> Funny enough, my son looked at us when we walked in the room. He says, I want to be at church Sunday. His, wire, his jaws are wired. He, they can't see. His eyes are swollen shut. It took him five days to pry his eyes open. They thought he'd be blind, but he only lost his sense of smell. But they said, well, you can't get out of this hospital until you can take pain meds orally. That kid worked his jaws, worked his jaws, worked his jaws, started taking pain meds. You know that kid walked into Resurrection Sunday, that very next Sunday, and it was like a resurrection for our family. Come on, y'all with me. Yeah. Yeah. So you look around and you say, why do we go through this? How do you go through these things? Well, that's where I really want to just focus. Can we talk about that, how we go through these things? Here's a few things I learned, and maybe you can write these down. I think they're very important because there's some things we have to know. There's some things we have to do to go forward because God wants to help us if we'll just turn to him. I'm going to give you three R's. Check this out before we go. I'm going to give you three R's I believe will help you that, that really brought me through everything I've gone through. That brought me to a place that I knew I would be able to face whatever come my way. Here's the first one. Number one, reminder. Everyone say reminder. In 2 Peter <laughs> chapter 1, Peter is running with all the believers telling them, the importance of faith. In the middle of that, here's what he says. Therefore, I will always remind you of these, about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. It is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. Now, now let me ask you a question. Peter says, I'm reminding you of things you already know. Do you think Pastor Rick, myself as a pastor, or anyone else that's teaching, that we're trying to come up here with a new revelation for you? No, no, no. We're just trying to say it in a fresh way. But it's the same things you need to know. It's the same things of the ABCs of faith you need to stay rooted in. That's how we don't get off focus. That's how we don't stray from where we need to be. Can you say amen? Then he goes on to say, for our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life, so I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. Man, the most prolific moment I've ever learned that from was when I was out in my darkest days, when I couldn't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. I could still hear, I could still hear the words of my mama, who's a God-fearing God lady, telling me who I was supposed to be, telling me who I am as, in, in Christ Jesus. I could never get rid of the voice of my mom. So this is what Peter was saying. After I'm gone from here, you're still going to remember my words. I'm going to haunt your thoughts. I'm going to be in your head. Come on. You ever had someone in your dome that you didn't want the words, but they were there and they were encouraging when you just wanted to be discouraged. Look at this. People do different things to remember for reminders. Years ago, you'd tie a string around your finger. Some people use post-it notes. My wife is a little old-fashioned still. She uses post-it notes, and they're everywhere. They're on her desk. They're on her computer. They're all over our mirror. And uh, I use an app on my phone called read.minder, and it bleeps, bleep, bleep, when there's a reminder, bleep. And so we were getting ready one time together in the restroom, and my phone's sitting over the counter, and it's just bleep, bleep. Bleep, bleep. And she says, would you stop that bleeping thing? That's, no, that's not a bleep. That was really what she said. And so 
to be kind of funny, I, just, I said, let me just finish my hair if I can see myself through your post-it notes. <laughs> and we say, reminders. Listen, you can hear a song from years ago and you're back to that moment. You can smell something. All of a sudden, you remember something. So we want to be intentional about what we're reminded of. We have to take the word of God. I think Peter just gave us what I learned, which is there are people, there are mentors, there are small groups, there's individuals sitting around you right now. There's people that love you and care for you. And together as the church, we're to remind one another of what our mission is, what our vision is, what our future is. Can you say amen? So I think it's vitally important. That second R, let me give you a second R. It's routine. Once you go through a reminder, what I had to learn was routine. Not mundane, but routine. Once I remembered what I was supposed to think about, I had to get in the routine of making sure that was done. We're creatures of habit. It's been proven. Creatures of habit. And if you don't get in the routine and positive things, you will naturally do negative things. If it's left to yourself, your thoughts will be negative. If you're left to yourself, your habits will be negative. We're not created spiritual in a sense of godly. We're created in the evil way that's been redeemed. So we can't let it be without intentionality. Routine, everyone say routine. Routine gives us intentionality. Uh, the habits we form largely decide who we are. If we want success and hardships, we have to learn and need to develop the routines of champions. Olympic athletes don't practice because they want to. They practice because they want to be Olympic athletes. If, if, you, look, if you look further into music, oh, come on, I love music. Musicians play by feeling. Feeling's great, but the best musicians you'll hear are those who learned it, practiced it, and then they play by feeling. I don't want just someone up there that don't know how to tune a guitar. Can you say amen? And we have to understand as well that in Christianity, it requires practice. It requires routine. It requires that we put together some things within our life. Many people waste their time wishing things were early, uh, easier instead of developing strength and habit that makes you withstand whatever comes. I don't want to wish my, my life was easier than anything I went through. I mean, sure, we all wish that, but I want to know that whatever comes, I can go through it because of the faith because of the process, because of what I got in the middle of. Can you say amen? amen? Look at Daniel 6, verse 10. Daniel was a young man in captivity in a foreign country, much like we have felt in America in the last couple of years. I don't care if you're American or not, it's been a strange time in our country. And sometimes I feel like a foreigner in my own land. But here's what David, I mean Daniel learned, that even in a foreign country, he could still shine the light of God. That even in a foreign country, he could find favor. In the foreign country, he could have a voice that would influence the king. It caused and stirred some jealousy, and some guys tried to take him down, and they found a way through his faith in God. So they got the king to pass a decree that no one could pray to anyone else or bow before anyone else except the king. So when Daniel, here it is, verse 10, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down, come on, knelt down in his place as usual. Everyone say as usual. In his upstairs room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he'd always done, giving God thanks, or giving thanks to his God. Now, as usuals can be positive, or they can be negative. Sometimes we have some negative as usuals. For instance, some of you here, you get road rage. When you get cut off in traffic, your as usual is not real attractive. Come on, y'all with me? I'm not asking you to admit it, I'm just saying, I'm talking to you right now. 
Some of you, women, when you're irritated at your husband, it doesn't matter what he does, he just chews wrong, and your as usual comes out. Right? Husbands, come on, let's face it, there's certain days it's like your bed is pushed against the wall, and there's no such place as the right side to get out on, and your as usual is grumpy. So we all have it. So we have to develop routines that are positive, routines that are godly, routines that set us on the path we want to be in, in relationship, in our marriage, in our faith, in our finances, whatever words you want to put there, we have to have a routine that leads us, come on, as we've been reminded. Daniel could not have overcome the lion's den without the faith he had in God, his routine. His routine was important. We have to develop as usuals that are good in our life. Number three, last one I give you, reward. Everyone say reward. Everyone loves rewards, right? I carry a certain credit card in my pocket because of rewards. I stay at certain hotel chains because of rewards. We all like payoffs. When our 25th wedding anniversary rolled around, I took my wife to the Mediterranean on a cruise. We got in line. They said to me, Mr. Goff, I see it's your 25th anniversary. You've cruised with us before. If you don't mind, we're going to bump you up to a suite with a balcony. I said, let me think of a course. That's about how long it took me to think about it. Because we love upgrades. We love rewards. Come on, y'all with me. I wonder how many people here have given two hours of your life for a timeshare presentation for a gift you never spent. I wonder how many of you are paying a subscription right now because of a free online thing you forgot to cancel before the deadline. I wonder how many Happy Meals have been sold to McDonald's because of a 50 cent toy. How many boxes and companies of cereal have we built into mega companies because of a prize in the bottom of the box our kids put their grimy little hands down into, right? Here's a bigger question. Why do so many Christians struggle to keep their eyes on the prize of the life of living a life sold out to God? If that's the prize, and if God said, we, I will promise you and give to you a better life if you serve me, why is it we have our hard time taking our eyes off that prize? It's better than any other prize we've ever experienced. But yet we act like it's so hard. Well, it's so hard. It's so difficult. Serving God's such a mystery. You live with mysteries every day and it don't bother you. How many here like butter? Be honest. Come on, we're in Texas. How many like butter? Everything's better with butter. Pancakes better or with them or without butter? With butter. Toast with butter. Butter. Everything's better with butter. But yet scientists can't tell you how you can take a black cow, feed it green grass, milk it and get white milk, churn it and get yellow butter. But you don't think I would enjoy butter better if I understood the mystery. But we just do the flimsiest things when it comes to serving God. Sure, it's going to be tough at times. Sure, we're not going to understand at times. But I will tell you this much. There is a reward that God has waiting for those who are faithful. Can you say amen? Look at this. And I'm going to close with a couple of scriptures here. Matthew 25, 23. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The ultimate reward. And if that's not enough, maybe you need more. Look what he said about our life on earth. Mark 10, 29 and 30. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife, children, lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now at this time. Everyone say this time. God's got you. He knows exactly what you're going through. And no matter where you're at, 
If you put your faith in God, it will get better. You can make it. We've decided that. And one of the ways that God has always been with us is in in the face of trials. When we had our hardest times, when maybe we felt like we was getting frozen in our fear, God always has a way of giving you a reminder and a tap on the shoulder. Yeah, I, I learned how to remind myself of his word. I've learned how to go through the routine it takes to be positive every day. And I know that the reward's going to be well worth the effort on earth. That's why the Bible says when you think you've had it hard, consider him. Consider his death. Consider what he did. Consider the evil. He, and it's nothing compared. But there's just been moments. I, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to invite my wife up. Yeah, she wasn't planning on it, but she's going to come up so you can meet her. And we call these moments taps on our shoulders. I shared one earlier in the first service where he just tapped us on the shoulder. An amazing story. Maybe you can go back and listen to that. But I just thought in this service, for some reason, I felt like it was time for my wife to share maybe God's tap on her shoulder a bit. Well, there was a moment that after our son was killed... I was kind of having a pity party for myself. How many of you have ever had a pity party for yourself? And I felt like I deserved it and it was justified. And I was just feeling sorry for myself that I was in the place of my, of my recovery that I was thinking about not being able to get my closure and my goodbyes with my son, Brandon. I was in a hospital and I was in such horrible condition and such critical condition that he was in another hospital that I couldn't even go to the hospital and they wouldn't let me out to go be able to say goodbye to him before they took him off the machines. And they did give me a two hour pass. They took me by ambulance that I did get to go to the funeral, but I had to lay on the front pew with my body cast and they drove me straight back to the hospital after a couple of hours. And so I'm laying there in my bed and I'm kind of having a pity party crying about not getting closure. And I just wanted to say goodbye to Brandon. I just, I wanted to get my final moments with Brandon while he was still on earth. And so I went to sleep that night and I believe that God gave me an amazing gift that I will never forget. So in the middle of going to sleep, I I hear a knock at the door and I, I was like, oh my gosh, there's somebody at the door. And so I go to the back door and it was Brandon. And I was like, oh my gosh, Brandon, you're back. Oh my gosh, you're back. And he just looked at me and with this big smile, he said, no, mommy, I'm not back, but he let me come see you for a little while. And so I looked at him and I grabbed him up and I held him and I took him over to the couch and I looked in his little face and I said, Brandon, I miss you so much. I just want to go be with you. I don't want to, I don't want to stay here. I just want to go be with you. And he looked at me and he said, it's just going to be a little while. I promise we're going to get to be together forever. It's just going to be a little while. And I said, I know. But I looked at him and I I said, how are you? Are you okay? Because in my mommy's heart, of course, I've been raised in church since I was a little girl. And I know about heaven. I know the streets of gold. And I know it's an amazing place. And Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus is there. But I was thinking, he was nine years old and I'm still very much a a caregiver. Mm, And I was thinking he's up there wondering where I was and wondering the streets of gold, wondering where mommy was. And I could just imagine him crying in heaven. And I know there's no tears in heaven, but I'm just in my mind imagining him missing me and he looked at me he said mommy it is so wonderful I can't tell you how wonderful it is and his face had this glow and this amazing joy on his face that I had never seen him here on earth with that kind of joy 
And it was like at that moment, it gave me such peace and closure mm -hmm. that I would never even want him back mm -hmm. on this earth to experience the pain of, of living on earth again. And so I took him in my arms and I held him and I sang to him and I ran my fingers through his hair and I kissed his little face. And then the sun started coming up through the window and he looked at me and he said, Mommy, he said, when the sun came up, I had to go back. So I said, okay. And so I took him to the back door I gave him a kiss and a hug, and I led him through the back door, and I closed it, and immediately I woke up. Mm. And I just thought, Hi, that was a dream. That can't be a dream. I know I was with Brandon. I know I felt him. I smelt him. I know that God gave me the gift of getting to be with yeah, my yeah. son in that moment. And that is an amazing gift that God gives us those taps, those moments of saying, God, I'm in the, painful, in the most painful period in time in my life, but God says, I'm right here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show you the love and the grace and the concern and the heart that I have for you, that he gave me that most amazing gift, and I will forever be grateful for the goodness of my father. <laughs> Amen. Amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.